The superpower I'd like to bring today is the ability to enable connectivity at scale. Something powerful happens when you tell people, I see you, I hear you, I acknowledge you. It just helps people connect a lot better and is certainly, in our opinion, a lot better than the default of ignoring people. I'm hoping that in about three years' time, none of us will have to attend or hold a session where we don't give a voice to the audience. From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoker or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Dear friend, thank you so much for listening to the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander. And on today's episode, I have someone who I feel is becoming a really good friend of mine. And uh, it's amazing the power of social media and connection in general. And I think that's going to be a theme of this episode. I have Lux Narayan, who is the co-founder of Stream Alive. He's an entrepreneur. Stream Alive is an audience engagement platform to then be able to run live sessions really effectively. It's a product that I've been using. And I just want to make it clear, this episode is not sponsored by Stream Alive in any way whatsoever. But I think the insights that Lux has are going to be really relevant to every one of us who are listening to this episode today. So Lux, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Patty, for having me. And by the way, the feeling is entirely mutual on fast becoming friends. And yes, I think it's a testament to the kind of connectivity that, that social and other things channel. But exactly my feelings, my friend. Thank you for oh. having me here. Oh, you're welcome. Lux, what is the superpower you're going to bring to this particular episode? I think you kind of beat me to it. You talked about connectivity and connecting humans to humans has been something that's important for me in many ways. And the superpower I'd like to bring today is the ability to enable connectivity at scale, which is when you have more than a certain number of people, how do you connect them without still losing that human to human connection? So connectivity at scale, if I were to summarize that in three words. And what an amazing superpower that is. We're talking at the moment how the world is becoming more and more lonely. People are getting more and more depressed because we're losing that human connection. and to have a superpower that enables the opposite of that, I think can only be a good thing for humanity. Can't wait to talk more about that. But before we do, I know you have an interesting background and story because I'm guessing when you were growing up around that age of seven or eight, your number one career choice was not to do what you do today. Tell me a little bit about that journey and how did you end up to where you are today? For anyone who's familiar with Indian parenting around the time I was growing up, you probably know that what you're going to do in life is largely dictated by the social infrastructure around you and parents and folks. You kind of almost presented two choices at that point, at least where I grew up. It is like, do you want to be an engineer or do you want to be a doctor? Which is not to say those are the only two themes. In fact, I, I did a talk afterwards about how that's pretty constricting in terms of how we should be looking at the world. But I grew up in a very tech-surrounded household, so to speak, where science and all of that was very important. Grew up also gravitating towards the sciences. I don't know if that is a function of the environment or, or the fact that I naturally liked physics and math, so went down that path. Did my engineering. I'm a mechanical engineer by qualification from this place in India called the Indian Institute of Technology, IIT Madras. But I think the most important thing I did was learn to play football or soccer, as we call it here in the States, and fall in love with it. Actually, that's B, because A is really meeting my co-founders in my previous company and this company. I met them in college. We were part of the same dorm, same hostel, same wing. That's how we know each other. Then when I did my MBA at a place called IIM Calcutta, where I think the most constructive thing I did was meet my wife, who's also part of the founding team here at Stream Alive. So college worked out very well. In terms of benefits that had nothing to do with the core educational part of it, in terms of who I live with, who I work with, all of that was desired decades ago when I went to college. Fast forward to what we do right now, it's kind of totally removed from what we learned. That's a funny thing, right? All of it makes sense from a rear view mirror now when you look back and say, yeah, sure, that led to this. And then from there, you went to this point. In my case, 
I had a career in entertainment for a while where I worked for this famous Indian actor that everyone in India knows and a lot of people across the world know as well called Amitabh Bachchan. He was my first boss. Hang on, I didn't know this story at all. The Amitabh Bachchan, the legend from Bollywood, who I think he is like everybody's idol when it comes to Bollywood. It's the Amitabh Bachchan you're talking about here. The Amitabh Bachchan. And for context, in terms of people who follow him, thanks to the population we have in India, perhaps, I mean, take Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and a couple of others like that, combine that together. My first employment letter was signed by Mr. Bachchan. Wow. Crazy story on that. When I did my MBA at IIM Calcutta, the norm at that time was for everyone to apply for a job. But I maybe had this bug on being an entrepreneur then. And me and a couple of like-minded or equally foolish friends, depending on how you think about it, wanted to start this event marketing company. We even had a competition within the college to name it and people, the, the winner named it Rope Trick. So we had this company called Rope Trick, which was supposed to be an event marketing and event management company. Shortest lived company in the history of companies lasted for all of one month. Because the first thing we did was pitch for business to the erstwhile Amitabh Bachchan Corporation Limited. And instead of giving us business, they offered us jobs with salaries and a package that was way beyond what we would have gotten with our GPAs had we applied for a job out of college and plus working with the legendary Mr. Bachchan. So all of us killed our entrepreneurial aspirations within 30 days and ended up joining the company. And what, what sort of drove them to offer you that job? There must have been something very compelling about what you guys either were offering or doing. They were, they were looking to corporatize the film industry. So the thesis was that there was a lot of disorganization in the industry. They wanted to bring a certain corporate way of thinking, organization, and I guess at that point, it logically made sense to have MBAs joining and they just started the company. So I was employee number 12, I think, in the company. They just started and they had internally articulated this plan of, hey, we should be reaching out to some of the B schools and looking at folks who might want to join a company like this. And here are three jokers who land up and say, can you give us business? And uh, yes, they're all from a reasonably good B school. And they seem already aligned towards what you want to do. They want to do events, which is a big part of what ABCL was focused on. So they said, okay, all right, this is a sign. Let's get these guys on board. So they made us offers. I think that's how it worked at that point. Just right place, right time. Wow. And do you have any examples of where you actually got to meet the great man himself? And could you share any? Funny thing, I'm originally from South India, where we understand Hindi, but not too well. And therefore, although everyone in India knows of Mr. Bachchan, I, I wasn't a huge fan of Bachchan as much as I was of Rajnikanth and some of the heroes from the South. I became an Amitabh Bachchan fan when I worked for the company. The man is amazing. He was a masterclass, not in acting and things, just in presence. I had to tell you a couple of stories on that. The first thing was when he actually gave me my appointment letter. That's the time we actually meet him for the first time. And he's sitting, looking as regal as he does behind this beautiful, big, I don't know if it's oak or mahogany table with a lot of important looking things out there. And he has a presence that's larger than life, right? He kind of fills the room. And I distinctly recall there's a bookshelf behind him. I sit in front and he gets up. And I do as well at that point. And then he shakes my hand and says, Hi, I'm Bachan, Amitabh Bachan. Like we didn't know, right? But it is courtesy to not be presumptuous about the fact that everyone knows who you are. And that first introduction was a masterclass in humility. I mean, he needn't have done that. He knows we know who he is, that the company has his badge on the door the moment we walk in. But it's a gentlemanly thing to introduce himself and then talk about it. And then we used to have meetings in his house and things, and he would treat us as guests when we come in there. Every evening at about 5.30 in the evening outside his house in Bombay, there is this thing where, without exaggeration, close to about 250 people gather outside just to get a one-minute peek at the man. The gates open, he has Z-class security, and he just waves at the audience and just says hi to them and waves. And there are people who have traveled far and wide from across the country, from villages, just to catch that one glimpse and say, I breathe the same air as Mr. Bachchan did. And we were with him in a meeting once when that happened. And he just, we were about to leave. And he said, sorry, but if you don't mind, you'll have to hang around a little bit longer. I'll have to delay you guys by 20 minutes. And it was for this, right? So we were standing behind him and we saw this. And there are a lot of people who command the kind of audiences, not maybe the size that he does, but 
he wears that responsibility with a great sense of humility which was a master class i i became a huge amitabh bachchan fan in the one year that i worked in the company oh wow i was just googling to see how many movies he's made because he's been around a long time he's about 80 years old now and it's actually over 200 films so he's had a whole kind of plethora of movies my most memorable is shorley which was almost inspired by some of the spaghetti western movies you know oh, yeah. that, <laughs> back in the day Clint Eastwood and some of those folks so they went on to star in but he just absolutely blew me away in that movie i think that's where i just became a massive fan of his and then beyond that there's just too many to name do you have a favorite or two interestingly i love his songs and his voice and what he brings to there's a lot of renditions of his father's work his father was a poet harivan shray bachan His father wrote this beautiful little parable or story about these friends their names are recall right Eer Beer and Fateh Yes I remember the song now You yes. remember the song that's a poem or a song written by Harivan Shray Bachchan and Amitabh Bachchan sang it with his deep baritone voice with music set by Bali Sagu So that to me is a beautiful piece of art because it transcends generations it's father and son and it transcends even more generations because Bali Sagu was, was at that point was far younger than Mr Bachchan totally different genre of music but he was open to all of that so it captures a lot of things handed over across generations working across boundaries and geographies across genres and still making beautiful art together so lots of movies and Shole is a personal favorite as well but I'm a big fan of his music as well Yeah. Oh, no, that's a really interesting side that you mentioned there. And talking about talents, so going back to your story, it sounds like your entrepreneurial journey started and stopped very quickly. So then how did you lift yourself back up to go into that world again? What happened? So about a year of working with the Amitabh Bachchan Corporation Limited, it was going great. It was a great place to be, but exactly what you said, I said, "Oh, I killed those entrepreneurial ambitions a little too soon and i had some ideas from having a ringside view of the entertainment industry on interesting things that could be done like direct marketing within the entertainment industry and things so i actually left to start something on my own which was a firm that really at that point did anything that we could do to make money which was sometimes direct marketing sometimes something else sometimes events and uh, interestingly we also went back to abcl and helped them sell their Indian movies in various territories like South Korea and Spain and other places where we discovered there was an appetite and people wanted the dubbed or subtitled versions of Indian movies because India has the largest movie production facility you just mentioned Mr Bachchan acted in 200 movies there are more than 10000 movies that have been made in India so there's a huge repertoire of content that was ready to be sold to different territories so i used to do a bit of that for ABCL and other producers who so worked in the entertainment industry as an entrepreneur for a couple of years and then when we had our first kid this was way back in in the late 90s in bombay then we had our first kid and i just felt it was irresponsible of me to live from month to month without certainty on where that next paycheck is coming because you suddenly have a windfall one month and then you have nothing happening for 3 months that's fine when it's you and your girlfriend now wife but when you have a kid on the way and stuff you just think you need to be a little more responsible and that prompted me towards taking up what one might call a regular job for various reasons decided to go to dubai because my folks were there at that point went on a break there and ended up getting a couple of good job offers including one with an advertising agency called lintas which has changed its name about 5 times since but lintas was a pretty big name in the advertising world so worked with lintas at that point and worked in media planning buying advertising for about 7 years which is a whole bunch of different stories rolled into one at that time as well because that's the time the dot com boom and bust and all that happened so I ended up working in advertising for about 7 years and then that same sense of oh now i wanted to do something on my own kind of set back as you can see that's a bit of a recurring theme there's this sense of dissatisfaction that kind of comes back was approached by a very dear friend from college who had been a successful serial tech entrepreneur for some time and he was starting something new in India in Chennai at that point in the data backup space and he convinced me that data backups are the best thing on the planet and that I needed to get into a tech entrepreneurship kind of a thing so we relocated from Dubai to India around 2005 
to join up with his friend to start a company called Vembu Technologies in the data backup space. And that really was set kind of cast the die, so to speak, for what I've been doing ever since for the last 18 years, which is being a serial entrepreneur in the technology space. We're doing different SaaS and web-based products since then. That's kind of where it started and had some kind of discernible patterns, so to speak. Yeah, my origins are Indian as well. Like my parents come from Punjab. They came over in the late 50s, 60s. And I do go back to India every now and again, but I really don't have my finger on the pulse in terms of what's trending out there. And would you say in today's world and in today's generation in India, that people are aspiring to become entrepreneurs as being the number one thing that they want to do? Because it feels very entrepreneurial in terms of hearing about all these new tech companies that are coming out. I saw a post the other day on social media and they were listing out all of the Indian CEOs, right, for all the major tech companies. And there's like loads of them. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea there were so many. We obviously know Sundar Pichai from the Google sort of organization, but then there's a whole bunch of others out there as well. What is this new generation wanting to be when they grow up? And I guess from your side, having been on that journey, what would you recommend and advise those people? I think you're absolutely right. There has been a very discernible change in perceptions, options, and what is considered a career option, so to speak, which also translates into things downstream and upstream, right? It's translated into a lot more flexibility when kids want to do something different in school or college and the kind of streams they want to pursue. We talked about a little while back where when I was growing up, at least in the society I grew up, you were expected to be a doctor or an engineer more often than not. And now that canvas, it was always broad, but it's more broadly acceptable at this point. Right? And some of it has come from success stories like the ones you described, because people are going to look up to Sundar Pichai or Satya Nadella or the CEO of IBM, Chantanu Narayan of Adobe and a whole bunch of other names and say, oh, wow, those people started here. And a lot of them are also first generation in Indian immigrants into the states of wherever they live, right? So there is a story there of was born and grew up in India, which is also a lot more relatable for people. Uh, I've personally seen the change in the last 15 to 18 years because when we were hiring at my first company at Vembu, I still remember, I've had to go and pitch to the parents of potential folks who are joining us because India, as you probably know, is very strongly, arranged marriages are a big thing in India. And there were websites like shadi.com where kids would put up their profiles and the parents, believe it or not, were worried that when a kid puts up their profile saying they work for a company called Vembu, nobody's going to want to marry them because that's a no-name company and therefore a startup is like a several steps down when you want to get married and settle down in life. That was the number one problem we had to contend with for hiring, if you can believe that. Fast forward to now, it's suddenly if you say you work in a startup or co-founded a startup or joined a startup early, that's got exactly the opposite perception. So some things change at a very societal level. And I think the prime mover for that is the fact that you have success stories around. It's also the fact that with software as a service and I mean, what we buy, we were one of the first at that point to do it, but there were a few companies in India around the early 2000s who were building products in India for the world. The logic was that everyone's connected. If you build a great product, it shouldn't matter which part of the world someone wants to use it. And that's true about a web-based product at this point, right? So what's obvious now wasn't at that point. And then, of course, other tailwinds came in as well, like funding and all the investors started looking into India and set up an office over there. And there was more and more capital coming in there, a whole bunch of policy changes. And the net effect of all of that was, I think it started a lot more grassroots, which is that people saw entrepreneurship as a viable option. And in the last few years, you're seeing ramifications of that as well. For example, in the last few years, it's not been total shock and dismay when a kid says they want to be a content creator, for example. Being a YouTuber is something a kid is allowed to articulate as a potential career option, although the die is tied against him from a probabilistic perspective. It is entering the mainstream conversation where people talk about it and they're comfortable talking about it. So I think a lot of things have happened and they've stemmed from success stories. Because there are, you can point a finger at, look at these people who did amazingly well. They may still be the outliers, 
but at least there are examples for people to look up to. There are startups that were started by founders from very humble beginnings, and there is relatability from that perspective. And I think it's continuing to happen. You're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, no, I completely relate to that. My son, who's 11 now, when he was about nine, he went, Dada, I want to become an influencer. And I was just looking at him thinking, what on earth? Because for a kid at nine to be telling me that's what they want to do. And I had no idea what a real influencer does. I was completely out of <laughs> my depth. But now I understand it. And in some ways I'm thinking, actually, that's not a bad career choice. <laughs> with everything going on, with the power of AI and the world changing so much, maybe being an influencer isn't such a bad career choice after all. But hey, we'll see. So Lux, I heard you speak on another podcast and you mentioned during the pandemic, you wrote a book. Could you tell us a bit about that? Because I think for me, there's lots of different dimensions to you, right? You've got your entrepreneurial spirit, but then there's, there are these other talents that you've got as well. And just talk to me a little bit about the book. What was that about? Thank you. Yeah, you could describe that as an extended midlife crisis or multiple talents. Take your pick, but yeah. <laughs> Definitely talents. Come on. I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> I like to keep busy. I like to do different things and I like to have counterweights to what you do at work because entrepreneurship can take a lot out of you in a good way, but it's good to constantly keep that perspective that it's not all everything there is to life. There are other things that they need to define you and that you need to make time for, right? From family and friends and hobbies and everything. The book, however, came from a combination of a bright space and a dark space, so to speak. What happened was just to fill in the gap after Vembu, which I did for some years, I co-founded a company called Unmetric in the social media benchmarking space. And that company's journey is one I describe as from a bedroom in Chennai in India to a boardroom in Copenhagen because in the end of 2019, we were acquired by a Danish company, which was acquired by an American public company called Cision in the PR space, which was then acquired by a private equity group. So long story short, we moved in one month in October 2019 from being an independent company of about 75 people to having a corporate great-grandparent within the span of one month. And... I thought, okay, this is going to be utter chaos, but then sometimes life gives you lessons. We had a personal chaotic incident with our older son who was on a semester abroad who had a crazy medical emergency with this rare autoimmune disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome when he was in Germany. And long story short, it ended up with us spending the next four months in hospitals and him having to be airlifted from Berlin to the States. And then he gets discharged from hospital in Jan 2020 and the whole world goes into lockdown a month and a half after, but we're still going to hospitals for the next six months. The reason I bring this up is just to give you a sense of the kind of mental space I was in at that point, because there's a lot of stuff happening. And when your child is hurting and stuff, that obviously takes a lot out of any parent. And I'm sure you can relate to that. Because of all that, I also left the company that I founded that had gotten acquired, just needed to spend the time at home with our son and with myself. And I'm glad I did that at that point because gave myself the space from a mental perspective just to have that freedom of thinking and doing what you need to. But then I also found that I had more time than I had in a very long time. So there was ideas behind the book you mentioned had been in my head for many years. Can't see it if you're not, if you're listening to the podcast, but it's called Name, Place, Animal, Thing. And I look forward to giving you a copy when you meet in person, Paddy. Oh, I'd be honored. I'm already really excited about the cover because I just love the very simplistic visuals for anyone that can't see it just got some very strong colors and uh, yeah just grabbed my attention immediately thank you for saying that because when we did the cover fun fact i had feedback from people thinking saying i think it's a child it's a children's book rather than a book for adults and at that point i had to make a decision saying either double down on it or say no we got to redesign the cover so it looks a little more adultish and i decided to double down on it it's a cover done by someone in Berlin, interestingly, a visual designer in Berlin. And the brief to him was to make it look like a children's book because the idea was it needs to appeal to that child that we've silenced a long time ago and give a voice to the child. So I said, if people are saying it's colorful and looks like a children's book, maybe we've done our job. What I'd done through Unmetric was I had these ideas which had shaped into a talk that I did in a couple of times. And then I, someone told me, Sometimes you need a little nudge. So there's this gentleman who was on our advisory board at this. He died during COVID around that time. God bless his soul. 
But at that point, he mentioned to me that these are powerful ideas. Maybe you want to bring it out in the form of a longer piece of work, perhaps a book or something. And sometimes that little nudge that someone gives you is all you need to say, okay, maybe there is something here. And this gentleman, Anand Rangaswamy, that's what he did for me at that point. I, I used to travel a fair bit on work because the previous company on Metric had people here in the States and people in India. And I used to fly to and fro at least about four to five times a year. So a lot of long flights where I would jot down these ideas and use those times to... So I had the skeleton of a whole bunch of points. To give you a too long, didn't read version of the book, It's the title is Name, Place, Animal, Thing. And the book is like if you've read Jonathan Livingston Siegel or Monk Who Sold His Ferrari or Who Moved My Cheese. It's like a fable or a parable with lessons in between. So it's non-fiction in the guise of fiction. And the whole idea is in reverse. It starts with thing where it says, make more things. It can be physical things like stuff like art and things. It can be virtual things like a podcast that people listen to on like the superpower podcast and learn things and do better things. So make more things and a framework for how you think about making things. Animal is get in touch with your inner animal, which is your body, your brain, your breathing and all of those things. Place was very apt during COVID, which was you don't need to travel far and wide. Maybe you need to travel near and narrow because most of us has, have stuff in our backyard that we've never seen. We probably need to look at those rather than have to travel far and wide. And name is actually to go on a total tangent. You had a podcast issue. Some I think it was Leslie or someone who talked about how to describe yourself in 50 words, right? Yep. Name is basically the fact that when people ask you, so what do you do? All of us tend to respond with what it says in the top line of our LinkedIn profile. But there's so much more to us as you and I had discovered with each other in our conversations, and I'm sure it's true of everybody who's listening to this podcast or not. But we should give vent to those names as well beyond just what we do for a living. So get embrace those cells of you that go beyond what you do for a living is a part of name. That's a gist of the book. Became my pet project, became my solopreneur project for towards the end of 2020. And funnily enough, what I do now in Stream Alive, never saw it coming, but was born from that journey. I never thought it would happen. But the idea for what we do now, everything was born from the three months of working on the book. Oh, perfect. I was just thinking there for a moment, I had a recent guest and a good friend of mine, Kerry Nichols. She was also talking about this job title that we use as an introduction. And she said for many years, she worked in banking and she's always given a job title. But now she's finally set up her own business and she thought, hey, for the first time ever, I can create my own job title and call myself anything. And I love hers because it's a chief mischief maker. And I just thought <laughs> that's the best. And she said she's got way more LinkedIn followers as a result of having that job title because people are so curious to know what on earth is that all about? Whereas if she just said, I'm the VP of XYZ, that's just like everybody's got a similar job title. So there's nothing that engages you with that, but really interesting. So moving on to Streamer Life, I have to say, for those of the listeners that have never heard of Stream Alive or never used it, I think just a personal endorsement from myself, it's been one of the most valuable tools that we've added to our arsenal from a collaboration and events perspective. And I'm not just saying that because I've got Lux in front of me, but I came across your sort of application very soon after it was launched. It was on one of the kind of marketplace websites, which is AppSumo. And we were lucky enough to get a lifetime deal on it back then. I'm going to get you to explain exactly what it does in a moment. And I say we, because as some of my listeners will know, I co-host a monthly meetup called The Visual Jam with my good friend Grant Wright. And we have a whole bunch of creatives who join that every month. And we were really looking to see how we could boost our collaboration, the experience for people that were coming to those events. And when I came across your platform, it was just a no-brainer. I was like, this is exactly what we need. And uh, hence, we made that step. And it's been phenomenal. So, Lux, tell us, what is Stream Alive and uh, how can it help people? Th thank you, first of all, Perry, for that endorsement. It means a lot, especially coming from you, because visualizations uh, are a big part of the platform, as we'll explain in a minute. And when I stumbled upon your community, when you saw you using it, and then actually a couple of us in our team attended a couple of your sessions and workshops, and they're amazingly inspiring. So thank you for what you do from that perspective too. And if Stream Alive helped in some small way in making those better in terms of connecting people together, 
We're super flattered and super happy. Thank you. I mentioned Stream Alive was born. So there are two stories actually. One goes back to 1979 about my grandfather, and we'll bring that in later because I was actually thinking about this, and it has some influence on in what we do in Stream Alive. But first, let me pick up where we left off, which was we talked about the book. I didn't know the first thing when I wrote the book and stuff in the end of 2020. I didn't know the first thing about writing a book, editing a book, and marketing a book. Let's keep aside the fact that you might read the book and say he still doesn't know the first thing about writing a book. But let's keep that aside for a second. <laughs> I signed up for a bunch of classes, and these were understandably online classes at this point. But even now, with the world returning back to sort of normalcy and being in person, it's still online classes because it's difficult to get a distributed bunch of people who want to write a book in the next quarter at this point in time to be in the same physical location. They're probably much better off meeting up online. So I signed up and paid for six different classes across these different subjects: writing, editing, and marketing books. Right? Class sizes ranged from eleven students to one thousand two hundred students for the "How to Get Amazon to Love and Bless Your Book" class, which is delivered on YouTube Live. The other classes were typically more often than not run on Zoom. Mostly Zoom meetings if you had less than fifty people in the room. Zoom webinars if you had more than a hundred. There were two or three sessions that actually were run on Facebook Live. So, in effect, I got to attend classes on YouTube Live, on Facebook Live, on Zoom meetings, and Zoom webinars, and I think one other platform that I can't remember at this point. But a whole bunch of live platforms. I actually counted. I attended fifty-six live sessions in a ninety-day period. So, two things happened. One was I learned a bit about writing, editing, and marketing a book, which I took forward into writing and publishing. Name plays animal thing, but the second I saw patterns time and again. I saw that the first session more often than not would always open with the presenter saying, "Hey, where's everybody joining from?" And there are three hundred people in the room, of which about a hundred and forty people actually respond to that because people enthusiastically type, "I'm in this place. I'm in Birmingham. Hi from Basking Ridge, and so on and so forth." The presenter eyeballs four of those responses and says, "We got Paddy from Birmingham. We got Lux from Basking Ridge. We got Joe from Chicago. We got John from Chennai." And ignores the remaining 136 people who so painstakingly put their answer. But that, if you think about it, is something that all of us are used to, have seen, and have come to accept. Because hey, what else can you do? If the presenter read off every single thing, he would sound like a geography teacher who's reading off the names of the places in the world. But it's pretty rude if you think about it. I mean, if I were to ask you a question and you gave an answer and then I absolutely ignored your answer, you wouldn't be too thrilled about it, unless you are one of two hundred people, in which case you're okay with it because you're like, hey, I mean, what else can you do? He's got to pick and choose, right? Rewinding back to my grandfather, my grandfather was the first public speaking teacher in Chennai in India in 1979. He started the school called the Effective Public Speaking Institute, and he had a rule which he used to implement and, and teach, which anyone who has spoken in public can use us to some in some form or fashion. He would say, every five minutes, ask your audience a question, and ask them to answer either the first time, ask them to answer by raising their right hand. The next time, ask them to stand up and answer. The third time, ask them to answer by raising their left hand. And the fourth time, start them off standing up and ask them to sit down if they are saying a yes. So he was employing physicality to get a binary response of yes or no, and then he would read the room and say, "Yeah, two thirds of the group thinks this way, or there are this many left hands and this many right hands." But essentially, giving a collective visualization to the audience just based on physicality of movement. And essentially, you can't acknowledge every single person in a class of forty people, but at least you can acknowledge them as a group, right? So, to some extent, I think that was in the back of my head when we saw this over here. Or the person would ask a question like, "Tell us how you're feeling today," or "What is the number one reason you joined this course?" And people would get their answer, and then they would pick or choose one or two people and answer their questions and ask them a little bit more and stuff like that, right? Or they would. Ask them a question. Ask them to scan a QR code. Go to a different website altogether. Do a whole bunch of browser gymnastics just to answer what they had for breakfast two hours ago. So it is very obvious that one-to-many communication was badly broken. And if you think about it, Paddy, I mean, it's actually thirty-eight years, if you can believe it, since PowerPoint was invented, nineteen eighty-five. And here we are, still having conversations where presenters are talking and delivering monologues. Our thinking was, isn't it high time? We had a dialogue where the presenter could listen to the audience. 
So that's kind of what we do. We solve for that. And the way we do that is in an online session. Let's say take Zoom. As people put things in the chat, Streamalive intelligently understands that. So in the first example of, let's say the presenter is asking people where are you joining us from, as they type their answers, Streamalive ingests that, plots it out on a map that is accessible to the presenter. So all the presenter is doing is showing their browser screen, which has a map, which within about one-tenth of a second of a person saying hi from Birmingham, puts a little blue dot on Birmingham so that Paddy is marked on the world. And something powerful happens when you tell people, I see you, I hear you, I acknowledge you. It just helps people connect a lot better. And it's certainly, in our opinion, a lot better than the default of ignoring people. I can go on and on, but I'm going to pause here and hopefully that explains why and how we build what we do. No, and that's exactly the problem. I've used other apps, not bad-mouthing them in any way because they're really useful, but like you got Menti, you got Slido. These are other apps that we sometimes as presenters will ask our audience to scan that QR code or go to a URL and answer some questions. It can be a poll, it can be some form of brainstorm. And it means that if I'm sat at home and I'm nice and comfortable, and I've joined this virtual session. Now you're asking me to pull out another device because I may only have one screen and I'm having to now log onto my phone, open it up and go take this extra step when I was expecting to do everything in this one tool. And I think you've hit the nail on the head, like the friction, when we remove friction from any kind of experience. It just makes things so much easier. I'll give you a quick example of that. I had a website, my own website, that was hosted on a particular platform. And I was thinking like, I would really love to build up my newsletter following and my newsletter list. And up until now, I've used this one platform, but it's not very well designed to capture people's email addresses. It puts a little pop-up on the screen every now and again, but it, it just felt like, it was just a distraction for people. Well, now I've moved over to Substack. And for anyone that doesn't know Substack, it's a way of publishing newsletters, but it's designed very much for that purpose, to be able to capture people's email addresses in an ethical way. It takes out all the friction. There's no nasty pop-ups. It's literally, you go to the site and it's there as an input box. And it just makes things so much easier. So when we design to remove friction, I think, it makes things so much easier. But Stream Alive, how does it do it? Because it's quite clever the way you manage to make this a seamless experience. Could you tell us a bit about that? So, so certainly. And then just to react to what you just said, a big fan of Stack here as well. I love the fact that you use Substack for a lot of things beyond what it was originally designed. So yes, you have your newsletter on Substack. But if you also host your entire podcast on Substack as well. So you publish all the podcasts on Substack and Substack is relatively new to the podcast game. So you're using it for all your publishing, if I gather right. Exactly. And I've only just recently moved over there. So I, I talk about the newsletter. I haven't actually published one yet, but I've written some content that I'm hoping to be sharing with the listeners. So please do look out for that. And uh, I just wanted it to be simple, even as a creator, like to take the friction now, even for myself. And the fact that this platform has newsletters, kind of a blog capability, plus the ability to host a podcast. It felt like the right thing to do. So that's why I've moved over. It makes so much sense. And it's about friction. They eliminated the friction for you. They eliminate the friction for the people who are following you, because now I know that whether I want to listen to your podcasts or read those blogs that you're soon going to be publishing and those articles that you're soon going to be hitting, it's all going to be on the same place. And, and that makes it easier for me. So I think friction is super, super important when you're designing products, as you mentioned. That was a singular driving force for us as a product. So all those other products you mentioned, they're all amazing products. And they were some of the earliest products, so Slido, Menti, and others were some of the earliest products in the audience engagement space. And they literally created that space, and they're pretty amazing. What happened was they were designed for the physical world, for in-person meetings. Because when you're sitting in an auditorium, yes, of course, you scan your QR code. You do that in Alive as well for an in-person meeting, then the pandemic happened. Suddenly everyone went online and they used the tools that we had for a physical world, for the virtual world, because we didn't have any other tools. That's how it happened. So our central guiding principle became don't ask people in a meeting to go to another product. They're already in a product. 
which is Microsoft Teams or Zoom or Twitch or YouTube or WebEx or whatever, and they're already overwhelmed and confused and distracted and things and stuff. So don't send them off to a browser because they're going to look at what Kim Kardashian is doing and never come back to, to your meeting, right? So keep them here and make it easy for people. The central thesis became a very simple one if you think about it. Don't ask people to go to the product, bring the product to the people, which required a fair amount of engineering heavy lifting in terms of our ability to integrate with every platform. Because here's a fantastic thing, right? Every online meeting and streaming platform, whether you're a live streamer or a slide streamer, which is what I like to describe people who present on Zoom and other platforms, every platform, Google Meet, Zoom, Twitch, YouTube Live, LinkedIn Live, Facebook Live, WebEx, what's common to all of them? They have chat. So our thinking was, if we can build a platform that integrates with the chat in each of these places, and that became a bit of an uphill task because each one is engineered differently. In the case of Zoom, we had to join as a bot. In the case of something else, you join with an API call. But it's different for each platform. But if we solved for that, how amazing would it be? Because people don't have to change a thing. They just type in the chat like they already are. Like you have a poll and you have four things and people type, yeah, I like one or two or three or four, and the poll is reading off that. Or how are you feeling today? Happy, sad, amazing, awesome, and is reading those words and populating a word cloud. Typing where you're joining from, hi from this place, I live in this place, it's looking for locations, plots you on a map. If you think about it, my grandfather's thing had a binary thing, but now with the internet, you have so much more color in the chat, and therefore shouldn't you have a lot more color in how you visually represent what people are saying. The beating heart of Stream Alive is these visual interactions that are powered in real time by what people are saying in the chat. And it's based off the platform chat. Or if you're on an in-person event, I have to tell you this, Patty, I think you'll love it. When I go for an in-person event, let's say I go for an event over here that is talking about how to use TikTok to generate B2B leads and the keynote speaker there is Gary Vaynerchuk. I go out there and I listen to the session. I'm not here to listen to Gary because if I wanted to listen to Gary talk about TikTok, I can probably find that on a YouTube video. I'm here to network with the other people who have a similar bent of mind. But here I am sitting in this conference room with 100 other people and I can't have a conversation with them because I would end up disturbing the flow of the presenter because I'd get shushed by a whole bunch of people. But if Gary was on Zoom, I could do that because you could have a parallel chat. So we all talk about getting inspired by the real world and taking it into the virtual world. We saw a case for the reverse, where what we do for an in-person meeting is actually create a chat on your phone. So you click on a URL and you go into a chat where you can talk about anything under the sun, except when the presenter is asking a question like, where are you joining from? Your chat interface changes to request you to answer that question in the chat. So we just launched a hybrid version now. So just imagine you have 200 people sitting in person and you have 500 people who join the session from Zoom. The Zoom folks are typing in the Zoom chat. The guys in the room are participating on a mobile chat. And everybody is the same. Nobody is a second-class citizen. Every single voice is heard. That's really a core proposition. Move audiences from 95% ignored to 95% engaged, which is what you do by simply acknowledging people. What we built is a platform that plugs into chat as a vehicle across platforms and the real world and hybrid to give every single person's voice an opportunity to be heard as a visualization that pops up on screen so that nobody's ignored. On that point, I've actually just formulated an article that I'm going to be writing for the newsletter. And it's the exact same point because I talk about when we go on holiday, at what point do we actually feel like we're on holiday, that it's actually happening, right? Is it the moment that we book the ticket? Or is it the moment that we pack our suitcase? Or is it the moment that we leave the house? Or is it the moment that we check in our luggage? I think for me, it's that moment that now I've given my luggage to you, it's on the aeroplane, it feels like this is actually going to happen now, right? There's no going back unless I mess up, unless something happens between me checking my luggage in and getting to the gate, I'm pretty much guaranteed now to go on that holiday. And I think when we think about meetings, whether they're face-to-face -face or virtual, when people come to those meetings, and if they're not engaged in those first few seconds, unless they've had that check-in, I think people don't feel like they're part of that meeting. I've been the same. I've joined these sessions. And if I'm 
just there as an observer in the background, whereas some of the people are being engaged, I kind of switch off and, like you say, get distracted. Maybe Kim Kardashian or, in my case, trying to think which <laughs> singer I would be distracted by, but I'm not going to say it because my wife might listen to this episode. Anyway, but I think that check-in is really important. And up until now, it's been really difficult to do that. And I was saying we use Streamalive on the Visual Jam. We use the global map. The way we used to do it was we would have a Miro map on Miro as an application, and we would ask people to jump onto the URL, stick their sticky notes on a big visual map. Now, a couple of problems with that. Firstly, not everybody wants to now jump onto another tool. It's a bit of a learning curve for some people. People were asking us, how do I create a sticky note? How do I type into it? This, that, the other. So there's a learning curve there. But the other thing was, depending upon when you join the meeting, you may have missed the URL. And so people are joining late and they're saying, hey, where's the URL for the tool? And by the time someone's listened to them and actually given them that URL, we've moved on to the next part of the session and we've stopped that engagement. And so for us, there's been a great use case where we put the map on there straight away and people are typing and it's all being done in real time and we're seeing people's names pop up. That's great. The other thing that's been really useful we had a guest recently who said, I'm happy to give a prize away, right, during the session. And we normally give prizes away afterwards. We do like a competition on the Visual Jam. But he said, but it's going to be really difficult because, you know, you're going to have X number of people on the session. Unless you've got a mechanism to pick a winner quickly, like it's going to be difficult. And we looked into Streamalive and you've got a really nice feature on that now, right, where you can randomly pick a name. And it takes all of the names that are on the Zoom meeting, puts them into a big wheel, and then you spin the wheel and it stops someone by random. That was genius. And it really helped because we didn't have to do any kind of additional manual effort or labor to set that up. It was very easy. And it actually is quite visually appealing seeing the wheel spinning. Why one bit of feedback on that looks is it'd be cool if we could have sound effects when the wheel spins because I was going tick, tick, tick. <laughs> that was my bad sound effects. But yeah, that would be really cool just to add that extra little element. But that's a small thing. But no, really nice. I think seeing that in action for us and it worked was great. And by the way, this guest didn't just have one prize. They had 10 prizes. So I had to spin the wheel 10 times. Quick couple of points on that. First of all, thank you for using it. All of one month old, it's a feature we call the winning wheel where you can define the criteria and saying anyone who's commented once or thrice or answered this question that you asked five minutes ago. So we're building more and more filters on it. And I think sound is absolutely essential. Thank you for that tip. You will hear an inspired by Paddy chick, 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 chick sound event. <laughs> I'm going to take the recording and take the chick, 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 chick you just did and play that out there and stuff. But I was just about to say, we love the way you use the magic maps in the beginning. You brought a very pertinent point about Miro, which is also an amazing product, by the way, to create for collaboration and brainstorming and everything. For something like just saying where you're joining from, we think it can be a lot simpler because when you're doing it to the post-it, exactly what you said happens. People who are late to the party don't know what's being served. And you've got to go to a browser tab to do it. So you're still disconnecting from the audience because at that time, I'm not looking at your face or what's happening. I'm on the browser tab. And I love the way you do your maps. If I recall right, the sessions I joined, you actually play Bangra music during the time that you have the initial yeah. thing as people are coming in. That's so cool. <laughs> So I think sound is important and that's a lesson I took from your implementation of the maps because it had sound and maybe we should bring in more sound in the platform, maybe arcade kind of a sound as it pins people and things. I'm just taking your feedback into other extremes saying maybe you should make sounds for the maps as well and bring in sounds so people... I've got tons of ideas for your looks. Like I'll throw a couple out there right now. I think even for a meeting, if you could ask the audience to suggest some songs and you could almost build a playlist dynamically based on the responses and maybe people can upvote, downvote. And then if there was a quick and easy way for us to then, I don't know, click on a YouTube link of those songs, or even we then have some time to very quickly create a playlist in the background, we can then play that. Because for us and the Visual Jam, people are always asking us like, hey, what song is that? But I'd love for people to be able to choose the tracks that we put on. Because when we're doing some of the activities, we put some background music on. And I think, again, music is so powerful to change the mood of a person 
if we want people to be high energy and try and really ramp the energy up, then there's obviously that kind of fast, impactful music. But then equally, we sometimes want to slow things down. And I think music is wonderful for doing that. I think you're going to love this. If you've logged into StreamerLive in the last four days. Nope. All right. There's a new feature that launched four days ago called Link Library, which reads through the text, reads through the chat and pulls up all links that people shared and then automatically filters them into these are LinkedIn profiles. These are YouTube links. These are Twitter handles and these are Spotify links. That's one category we have there. We don't yet have the ability to say, combine all of these into a playlist. And I think we should absolutely do that where it says, this is the vibe of this tribe, so to speak. But right now it would pull up those URLs that people have saved and you can click on it and play it and you can hit a share button and share that as collateral with the entire team. So first cut towards a vision that you just described, at least that first step is just got launched four days ago. We still have some distance to do to go before we deliver what you asked for. We'll get there, Paddy. I think that totally makes sense. Oh, looks, that's an amazing feature on its own. I'm just thinking about so many use cases just there. Like one of the great powers of crowdsourcing is knowledge. And especially in the Visual Jam, I'm always amazed, even when we have some very big experts, like these are thought leaders in their field, giving a talk, there's always people in the audience who are then suggesting additional resources. Could be a book, could be a YouTube video, it could be a TEDx talk. But imagine you've got like 300 people on this Zoom meeting. Those links all get lost in the chat. And unless you download the chat, you lose those links. So you've got to be very quick. And I think what you've just mentioned there is an invaluable feature because being able to very quickly and easily pull out all of those links in one go, what a great feature. I'm really excited by that. It's exactly what you described, Patty. There's so much of wisdom in the crowd that we lose. In those 56 sessions that I attended while writing the book, there were at least a dozen where I had these old moments because I hadn't downloaded the chat mm -hmm. in a Zoom session and it, there wasn't a recording for some of them. And therefore, links that people had shared as great books to read or great authors or great designers. And here is someone who does XYZ service. I lost all those links. So the other thing we did with Link Library is you don't have to activate it. Once you have, let StreamAlive into the meeting, it's automatically doing it through the entire session. You can invoke it anytime you want because it's that central thing on when you have a session with many people, it's not a speaker telling everyone that I have the knowledge and you're here to learn. It's just a speaker. The speaker is, in our opinion, always a facilitator and is the excuse for these people who are like-minded in some ways to get together and they have so much of knowledge and ideas and tastes to share with each other. We need to be harnessing it a lot more. And especially in this world that's getting more and more algorithmic and things, we need to bring that humanness front and fore, which is actually a collective representation of everything we've been through, right? Your story has, I can't think of any other Stream Alive user who starts their session with Bangra, right? You probably don't have any other podcast guest who started their career, Avita Bachchan. But so each of us has our own little story that we bring to fore in these sessions and we should be capturing it, man, right? Yeah, no, well said. And so, Lux, in terms of the future of Stream Alive, are there other exciting features on the roadmap that you can share exclusively on the podcast? So a few features we're building, we put a target to ourselves, saying every month we need to build at least one new visual interaction of sorts, and a lot of them are improve one. So thank you for giving us the sound part of it, because one thing is already ticked off after this conversation today for the winning wheel and maybe some of the other features. but. Really, conversations like this are what shape what kind of features you want to do. I mean, the winning wheel is born through a couple of conversations where people said it's a pain to manually enter the names of everybody. Can't it happen automatically? So we have someone who is using us in cohort-based courses. And at the beginning of the classes, they ask people, let's say I'm running a course on storytelling. And I say, how good of a storyteller do you think you are on a scale of one to five? Where five is Steve Jobs and one is this baby who can't speak. What kind of scale do you think you are in, right? And hopefully they come up with maybe an average of 2.3 and at the end of the class, after going through what you have to teach them, they go to 3.5 or something like that. If they go below where they started off, you've got some recommended thinking to do. But So we're building a feature for that, for example, called Pulsing Points, which is going to capture the numbers that people put in the chat, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and render it like, you remember those, this is where we date ourselves a little bit, you remember those graphic equalizers that come up in the old tape recorder decks where the colors just zoom up and down? Oh yeah, kind I of, love those. I love those. So a visualization that when someone types a one, the one jumps up and down. When someone types a three, the three jumps up and down. 
There's something beautiful about cause and effect, right? When you type a button and something happens on that screen that happened because you typed something, it's actually a little dopamine rush that happens, right? So imagine the whole thing dancing based on what the audience is saying and then saying, okay, time up, the average is 2.3. So this is a feature called pulsing points. We have this fetish about naming all our features with alliterative names, so magic maps, power poles, pulsing points, transient thoughts, winning wheels, everything has to have a double thing. So please bear that in mind. Anything you suggest to us has to be alliterative in nature. That's the first filter. Jumping jackpot is something we're doing as well, bringing a bit of Vegas. So the winning wheel is a wheel function. Why can't we take the same thing into a jackpot where everyone's names just get spun in the jackpot? So it says Paddy, Lux, John, Tina, and so on, and then finally slows down and ends up with John's name and John wins a prize. So another visual manifestation of that. We're doing a bunch of word-based games. So imagine you could type something that is core to your product. So for example, you're about Visual Jam. And therefore, visual thinking is important. So you could say visual thinking and StreamAlive would jumble that up and make it an anagram. And in a break, it puts up the anagram. And the first person who types visual thinking in the chat, it just explodes into confetti and says, Tina, that's absolutely right. You got it right. Filling in breaks with little fun anagram games that are based on the core proposition. It's also a way to get a message back. If StreamAlive is about engagement and visualization, those may be two words I feed into the anagram machine. And as people are figuring that out, they also get the message of it's about this. So bringing fun really, right? It's like the winning wheel also, there's something very childlike about seeing a wheel spin and it brings back memories of childhood, seeing it slow down and the physics of it. So trying to bring all of those is going to be a central theme around all of the features we're doing. We're also expanding platforms. So we just launched Twitch and Google Meet very recently. And as of day before yesterday, launched hybrid. So you can actually use StreamAlive on Zoom plus in-person, Teams plus in-person. The vision is anywhere people meet live in groups of more than 10 people, we want to enable many-to-many -many conversations and ensure that the audience moves from 95% ignore to 95% engaged. Oh, fantastic. And I just want to throw in one other awesome feature that you've got in there. As a host or the facilitator, you actually produce some really nice analytics off the back as well of the meeting. And you have things like who was the most engaged person in the whole meeting? And you do like a chart almost. And you can keep that to yourself. You don't have to reveal that to the audience. And I also love like the feature on YouTube where you can see a little graph underneath the video to see at what point were people most engaged. And again, when was the chat? at its most busy during the session and it gives you a little graph of that as well so you can see was it when i asked this first question or was it during the dancing or whatever you're doing on your meeting i think that's really good as well it gives you some insight into what did cause some great engagement during the session so i think that's really important i love the way you've done that as well in terms of your future vision for the platform what would you like to see with StreamAlive happen from this conversation onwards? If in a year's time, we're sat back here and you look back, what would success look like for this year for StreamAlive? Is it just about growth or is there something other than that for you? So this year, is, it's a function of the stage of company. Just very quickly to react on the analytics point that you mentioned, Paddy. That's another thing about journeys. A previous company, Unmetric, was in the social media benchmarking space, was an analytics platform. So to some extent, we have a bit of an analytics hangover, which kind of spilled into StreamAlive in some ways. I'm glad you liked it because I think it can be pretty useful to plan for a better session next time around based on what worked and what didn't, which is a good segue. So there's a lot of plans for StreamAlive on the roadmap as we discuss in terms of product and making presentations better and stuff, right? So we joke internally, sometimes we say the motto is MAGA in some ways, make audiences great again by giving them a voice and making them heard in some ways. Right now at this stage of company, it is going to be a growth number where it's going to be maybe in a year from, because what we're seeing is a lot of people who sign up for Stream Alive are signing up because they saw it being used in some other session. Someone is an audience at somebody. Each time you use it on the visual jam, I think we have a couple of signups that happen because people look at it and say, wow, I want a slice of that for my next session. So thank you for that. Therefore, it becomes, the challenge becomes, how do you get more and more people to discover it? And we've been under the radar. You're one of the first people who discovered us. We went public in December. And I think you discovered us that month. So you're one of the early users. 
And we've still been quiet for the first six months of this year. We're going to become a lot more vocal from the 1st of July in terms of putting content out there, helping people discover us a lot more and things. We're solving a few things before that, like building an emulator so you can see how it's going to work so that you get that wow moment much sooner than having to wait for your next Zoom meeting to see it in action, things like that, before we actually go all out. But it's going to be a target in terms of numbers. We're hoping that in the end of this year, we'll have more than 10,000 presenters using Streamalive. Right now, we have about 1,500. And we want to hit way above 10,000 because then catches a velocity and momentum of its own because those 10,000 people will present to maybe, if you take an average of 50, you're going to have 500,000 people up exposed to it and some of them will sign up. So it's going to be a number like that. But the larger term aim is something like this, Paddy. I'm hoping that in about three years' time from now, if anyone experiences, just like studied in college at a time when people are still using, if you remember those transparencies that they would put on overhead projectors and it would be on a, for those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about, it's like a sheet of cellophane paper where someone would have written something. It would be put on a little light box device that would project light through it and put that on the wall. And that's how you see, it's called a transparency, right? I'm sure none of us have seen a transparency in the last five years. In the same way, I'm hoping that in about three years' time, none of us will have to attend or hold a session where we don't give a voice to the audience. Whether it's in person, whether it's virtual, whether it's live, it would almost be considered rude and obnoxious to have a session where a person continues to speak, unless it is a five-minute session, in which case they can be excused. But for anything more than 10 minutes, you need to have a conversation, hear the audience as well. And the norm becomes one of conversation and dialogue as opposed to monologues is really what I think the long-term aim is. You want to change how people fundamentally communicate in large groups. Oh, it's a fantastic mission and vision. I love that, Lux. Before I jump onto my final question, it's so refreshing seeing someone who's working in tech actually listening to the real users of their product and the fact that you attend other presenters' sessions. Like you mentioned, you came along to the Visual Jam just to see how we use it. Maybe you'll pick up some insights around what more you could do with the product and then you listen. You mentioned the spinning wheel where you've listened to some of the real users and, and then taken that feature up and built it. I was only joking about the spinning wheel and the sound effects, but hey, if you do it, that'd be awesome. I would be. It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> so that'd be absolutely amazing. Just to finish off, something listeners often ping me and say, Paddy, what resources would you recommend on this subject or that subject? I'd love to hear like just some of your favorite resources that you could recommend for people. It doesn't necessarily have to be about the superpower we talked about today, because I know you're a very diverse, divergent thinking guy. You think a, a sort of about a lot of different things and your background is very diverse as well. So yeah, I'd love to hear like some of your recommendations. So happy to follow on with a list of maybe URLs or things if that helps. But I think the biggest recommendation I would give is real life. A lot of things that we do at Stream Alive and that I do in the other things that I like to do are inspired by things you see in the physical world in real life. And increasingly in a world where we're all talking chat GPT and things, I think we forget that we are living, breathing carbon life forms that are existing in ether and moving around and interacting with each other. There's so much inspiration over there. For me, that really is the biggest thing. And just to give a little more legs to what I'm talking about, I'm a big fan of stand-up comedy. I fancy myself as a comedian, do sets once in a while and stuff and when I can, and I love it. So the reason I bring that up is not to brag or something, but just explain how it changed my perspective on one simple thing. Before I started doing stand-up comedy, when I'd be in an airport, I would be clamoring to finish my last email because Wi-Fi is ridiculously priced and therefore I don't want to pay for it on the flight and I want to finish it before I get on the flight. And I would be oblivious to everything happening around me. Now when I'm going for a flight, I have my phone open because I have my notes open or Notion open and I'm writing ideas that happen from things that people are doing because all of it is comedy fodder. I mean, airports are one of the best places to get inspiration for stand-up comedy, right? So suddenly that changed my lens on how I look at the world. I suddenly started looking selfishly and greedily for material initially, but just made me a lot more observational and a little more in the moment as opposed to being totally disconnected from my environment. In August last year, I was in Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival. And it was one of the most magnificent things that I had seen. I saw people engaging their audiences in different ways and having conversations. I saw improv shows. I saw so many different things and came back with a whole bunch of 
inspiration and ideas for, I mean, in general for life and for Stream Alive as well, right? This year in August, I'm going to be there as well. Hey, side note, I'm going to reach out to you to hopefully on my way between London and there, drop in at Birmingham and say hello if that works for you. But 100% we're going to make it happen. Yeah, <laughs> we'll make it happen, my friend. But things like the fringe and festivals, when you go for a, I told you that the QR code based application of how people interact using a mobile app and a thing is entirely chat based. The reason it's chat-based is because I've been shushed in more events than I can count for talking too loudly when someone is talking on stage. But hey, I pay $350 to network with the guys in this room and not to listen to this guy because this guy is on YouTube with exactly the same talk. So there's so much, I mean, Stream Alive, the inspiration was born from the virtual world, but we're increasingly taking lessons from the physical world, right? You're taking Bangra, which is a fantastic Punjabi dance form, into an opening icebreaker when you're doing things, right? I think there's a lot of inspiration just in real-world stuff that we've unfortunately started discounting increasingly because of the kind of things that we're seeing online. And at the risk of sounding very old school in this, my biggest thing was look would be look around you. There's tons of things happening that can be fodder for everything from work to life to a whole bunch of other creative inputs as well. Wow. I'm going to say, look, I've done, by the time this episode gets published, we'll have done well over 100 episodes. And out of all of the guests, like you're the first person to say exactly what you just said there around, look to the real world and look to your surroundings. I think that's a really useful insight because even when I was talking about my newsletter and I'm trying to get that off the ground, one of my big challenges was, am I going to have enough material on a regular basis to be able to share with my audience? What could I possibly talk about every other week? in that newsletter. And since I've had this idea in my mind about the newsletter, I've been much more intentional about appreciating what's going on around me. Similar to you, we went recently on a few conferences abroad and I was very observant around what was happening around me, what I was seeing, how people were reacting, how they were talking. And that idea of the check-in with your audience very quickly. That all, I got inspired by the fact that we had to wait for almost an hour and a half to check in with this particular airline. The lady in front of us had actually fainted, so I had to rescue oh, her. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was a very traumatic check-in for me. And when we talk about friction, it was probably the worst example ever of checking in. But it was great because it became really good inspiration for that particular newsletter. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Lex, we've run out of time and I can't believe how time has flown. I normally schedule these sessions for around 45 minutes and we've blown that out of the water. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. My editor is going to kill me because I now have some support in editing these episodes. And I tell them typically every episode's around 30 to 40 minutes. So this one's a double episode. <laughs> it's uh, like an Indian Bollywood film. It has to be a lot longer. <laughs> there you go. That's our excuse. When Amitabh Bachchan's involved, that's it. It's going to be an epic episode. And that's exactly how I feel this episode has gone for me personally. I hope everybody listening has also found it as equally as useful and insightful as I found it. Lux. Thank you so much for giving your time today and sharing some of those stories. I feel a lot wiser than I did at the start of the episode. So thank you. Paddy, thank you for having me. Thank you for supporting what we do. I'm glad we met in the virtual world. I look forward to in keeping with the theme of what we just spoke, meeting you in the physical world very soon. So I look forward to that. Thank you, Paddy. Oh, you're welcome.